Well, we're going to be reading about the basis that we have for such confidence in these songs. It's the Word of God. And uh, we've gotten out of the habit of responding. Reformed worship is always dialogical. God speaks, people respond. And uh, the appropriate response we find in 1 Corinthians and many other passages is a resounding amen to God's Word, even when He uh, condemns us even when he exposes our sins. In this case, it's a pretty encouraging passage, but uh, let's uh, say an amen as soon as the uh, reading is finished. Revelation 22, 6 through 11. Then he says to me, These words are faithful and true. The Lord God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show to his slaves the things that must shortly take place. Take note. I'm coming swiftly. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, who heard and saw these things, when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he says to me, Don't. I am your fellow slave, and among your brothers the prophets, those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Then he says to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. He who acts unjustly, let him act unjustly still, and let the filthy one be filthy still, and let the righteous one still practice righteousness, and let the holy one still be sanctified. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word. It is our desire to respond to it appropriately. And so we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would draw our hearts out to you, and uh, that you would enable us to continue to worship in righteousness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, in the reading that I just gave, we're at the beginning part of the epilogue to this book. And so if you remember, this book was constructed like a giant chiasm with each of the sections kind of parallel to each other, while the introduction to the book and the prologue both deal with the principle of how to read this book and do so profitably. And so it's going to be actually repeating a number of the principles that we looked at, and I'm not going to repeat myself and what I said back then, but what I'm going to do this morning is apply it in new ways, same principles, but apply them in new ways uh, into our, our hearts. Now, over the past three messages, we've been looking at the glories of the New Jerusalem, and we saw that the New Jerusalem is not simply a destiny that we get to when we die. It is something that has an impact upon our lives every day that we live. It is Mother Jerusalem that gives birth to us all. It has a tug upon our hearts as the Holy Spirit uh, pu pushes us into this upward call. It is relevant. It invades earth, or to use a non-military metaphor, it is this Garden of Eden where the rivers are overflowing that mountain plateau and going out and turning the whole world by the Holy Spirit, which that water symbolizes, uh, into a paradise restored. So uh, we're going to go through some of these principles and look at them from another angle. Why does the book of Revelation matter? Why should we read it? Why should we study this book? Well, it matters first because the words of this book are faithful and true. We can bank on that. Verse 6, then he says to me, these words are faithful and true. Now, I have seen too many books 
that just slide over words and phrases, sometimes entire verses, or will try to actually explain a way uh, that even though this seems like it's saying something, it really doesn't mean that. But we have seen as we've gone through this book that you can trust absolutely every detail, every word of this book, even the judgments of sin are faithful and true. Someone once said, men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. <laughs> so true. Uh, it's not a politically correct book at all. The whole Bible is not, but it's precisely because it is God's word. It is faithful and true that it stands in such contradiction to the falsehoods that surround us. Second, we can trust the words of revelation because it is God's revelation. Uh, duh, I mean, we shouldn't even have to say that, right? But many times we live inconsistently with that. We do not treat this Bible as if it is God's personal letters to us, him speaking uh, into our hearts. Uh, verse 6 uh, talks about the trustworthiness of this, the reason why it is trustworthy, and it is God communicating his inerrant thoughts into our, into our minds. And so if God is omniscient, if he never makes mistakes, if he never lies, Simple logic tells us that if this is God's word, every bit of it, then this is never going to lie. This knows all things. This exposes the deceitfulness of our hearts. So verse 6 says, The Lord God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show to his slaves the things that must shortly take place. So God is revealing himself uh, uh, through this angel and through his prophets. And we need to get used to approaching the Bible as if it is God speaking to us. Third, the words of this book are faithful and true because they are prophetic words. True prophecy is not an I think so statement as today's charismatics typically see it. I think the whole book of Revelation is a rebuke to the charismatic movement, especially on the issue of prophecy because they really have downgraded the nature of prophecy and in the process they have undermined uh, the true nature of the scriptures. Uh, I've mentioned to you before that um, one of the pastors here in town was talking with me and a whole group of the pastors was agreeing with him that, oh yeah, prophecy uh, can make mistakes. That's not a problem. Even Jonah made a mistake. And I had to argue with him and say, no, that is not a mistake at all. And he said, well, there's plenty of mistakes in prophecy. The apostle Paul thought when he had this Macedonian call that it was a man who was calling him. And he said, oh, it turned out to be a woman. It was a chauvinism that was clouding this prophecy. And so man injects some of his own ideas into prophecy and it's not always correct. So I've had to contradict these ideas because their views of prophecy completely undermine the inerrancy and the authority of scripture. It is not the way prophecy works. Um, and so, if you have a, a wrong view of prophecy, it will affect your view of Scripture. Automatically, it will affect your view of, uh, of Scripture. Uh, when you examine the authority of the last two prophets in Revelation chapter 11, you see they are nothing like the modern so-called prophets uh, that uh, are around us. Uh, they're quite different. We've seen earlier in this book that all prophecy in the scripture is inerrant, infallible, and authoritative. Why? Because it communicates God's very words. 
Verse 6 is explaining why we can trust the words that this angel has given to, through John, to John, as being faithful and true. It's because this is the final deposit that God has communicated through his prophets. The book is a prophecy. He calls it the prophecy of this book and the book of this prophecy. And uh, so we dealt with that subject in depth in chapters 10 through 11, but I think this is a major area where the church needs uh, to have reform. Next, because the words of this book are God's very revelation to us, because they come through the prophets, the last part of verse 6 says that these prophetic words record things that must take place shortly. Okay, the, the Greek word must is day. Uh, if you transcribe the Greek into English, it's D-E-I. Day is defined in the dictionary this way. Quote, to be under necessity of happening. It is necessary. One must. One has to, unquote. So applied to these words, it means these words cannot fail. They must be fulfilled. Why? Because it's of the very nature of prophecy to be infallible and to be inerrant. And in the 100 plus sermons that I've given on the book of Revelation so far, at least that's what somebody told me we had. I didn't actually count them myself, but um, we have looked at absolutely remarkable fulfillments to the prophecies of this book. Too many people are skeptics and they cannot take God's word at face value. For example, the vast majority of the commentaries on my shelf uh, have looked at that phrase that prophesied that the blood would be up to the horse's bridles and they have said, oh, that's got to be hyperbole. It is absolutely impossible for that to happen. So here are their minds judging what is possible, what is not possible, instead of allowing the word of God to judge what is possible and what is not possible. And of course, we have seen eyewitness accounts of there being literal blood up to the horses, didn't say bridles, noses, same thing, up to the horse's noses. Now, as, as impossible as that prophecy may seem to be, because it is God's very word, because it is a prophecy, it must be fulfilled or God's very character is at stake. Others think that the prophecy that every island and mountain in the Mediterranean would move so fast it would feel like the ground was fleeing from underneath you, people say, oh, well, that couldn't have happened. That's impossible in history to happen. Now, science is catching up, and in the last decade, they've been doing Mediterranean uh, studies on seismology, and they have discovered right at the period that this prophesies it would take place, there was such massive movement throughout the entire Mediterranean that every mountain and island very literally moved, some of them moving many meters in the air. It would have been a scary thing to be on the land at that time and feeling the land like it was fleeing, moving underneath you. So when God says something will happen, it happens. Biblical prophecy is nothing like modern so-called prophecy, which claims to be 60% accurate. Biblical prophecy must be fulfilled. That word must is so important. Actually, Matthew 7 gives that as one of the tests of whether you're a true prophet or a false prophet. He says, if you're a true prophet, you're a prophetic tree. He says, a prophetic tree is always going to be producing good fruit. That means 
He will, anytime he's prophesying, it will be 100% accurate. If there's even one bad apple, if there's one false prophecy, the person is judged as a false prophet, and he's judged just in the same way that the Old Testament judged them. So again, it's a necessary implication of the fact that prophecy is inspired. So what does this do? When we have this proper view of prophecy, it makes us trust God's laws, his predictions, his promises. Every word of this book is trustworthy. Now that leads us to the second major point. The words of this book were relevant to the first century audience. And because we have seen the specific ways that God fulfilled most of those prophecies, some of them were said to be off into the future, but the ones he said to be near, they were all fulfilled in the first century, uh, then it becomes relevant for us. But if, as some people say, the vast majority of this book is irrelevant to us, it only takes place and is relevant to a seven-year period at the end of history, and uh, it involves you know, battles with rockets and tanks and helicopters and all of that kind of stuff, then the first century people that he was writing to, they would not have understood what in the world he's talking about, why it was relevant to them, and why he even bothered to give the book to them. But we have seen that since the original audience was composed of Jewish Christians under the apostles' care, they would have instantly understood this very, very Jewish book instantly. Here are some of the ways that this book was very relevant to them. Verse 6 says that this book's purpose was to show to his slaves the things that must shortly take place. Now that Greek word for shortly is actually two Greek words. It's entache, and it refers to something that will happen very, very soon. 2,000 years later is not very, very soon. This is a repetition of what we saw in chapter 1, verse 1. And so the conclusion is that every one of the seven major sections of this book must have at least something that is substantially fulfilled in the first century. Though, um, and that's true, by the way, of even the, the last section that we looked at of the New Jerusalem. Even though chapters 21 through 22 are looking from the perspective of the first day of eternity back at what God has done, uh, the New Jerusalem, according to Revelation 3, was already in existence in the first century, and other scriptures that we looked at showed that it was being constructed uh, from AD 30 all the way up to AD 70, and it was completely finished in AD 70. And so even chapters 21 through 22 are reminding us of things that the New Jerusalem did in history. For example, it brought healing to the nations. Well, that doesn't relate to eternity. In eternity, there is no sickness. There is no need for healing. In any case, the vast bulk of this book was fulfilled in AD 70, and even the beginning of the last section was fulfilled at that time. So it's relevant first because the things of this book had to take place shortly. It was very much concerned about issues that were going to impact the, the, the first century audience. Second, Christ had promised to come in judgment upon first century Israel within one generation. A generation's 40 years, so within 40 years. Well, that 40-year period was about to expire. You see, uh, Paul, John is writing this 36 years after Jesus made that prediction. He wrote this in AD 66. So very literally, verse 7a uh, was 
uh, fulfilled. And it, this was repeat of what he had said earlier when he says, take note, I am coming swiftly. Now the word swiftly, uh, Pickering picked that because he's a uh, uh, dispensationalist. It's a little bit prejudicial term. That is a word that can mean two things. It can mean that it happens soon. That would be an accurate translation. Or it can mean, oh yeah, long, long off in the future, Christ is going to fast come down to the earth. Well, that's not the word here. This word does not mean fast. Uh, <coughs> dictionaries uh, define it as a brief time subsequent to another point of time. And it's always rendered, if you're translating it right, in a short time or soon doesn't have anything to do with the speed of God's descent or Christ's descent. It talks about the short period from the time of the prophecy until its fulfillment. And we saw that Jesus did indeed come soon to bring judgment. Now, is he going to come in the future to the earth? Obviously, we've seen that he is. There is going to be a second coming, but that is predicted to be a long ways off. That is never predicted to be soon. It's a long ways off. This is predicted in various language to be soon, near, at hand, and about to happen. And, and again, our doubts should not dictate our exegesis. If God said Jesus would come in judgment soon, he came in judgment soon. And earlier in the book, I shared with you the testimonies of eyewitnesses who saw it with their own eyes. They said that they saw this huge figure of a man that they were blown away with, with his beauty his awesome presence leading armies of fiery chariots and horses who were sweeping all through the land of uh, Israel in judgment. This was very relevant to the first century audience. And because it was fulfilled to a T, it provides guidance for us to show us how God engages in all of the other historical judgments that we've seen over the last 2,000 years of history. So if Israel and and Rome both could not get away with their sinful rebellion against Christ in the first century. He's saying, hey, this is the pattern for God. No nation is going to get away with their rebellion in history. Um, but on the dispensational interpretation, this book only relates to his judgment on the last seven years. Utterly unrelated to anything God's doing now. They get away with, without judgment, during the earlier periods of history. On our interpretation, this book is very relevant. It shows that Jesus judges even Gentile nations in history. So by showing us its fulfillment in history, it gives us a philosophy of history. By showing how God's covenant, his law, his judgments impacted Israel and Rome, we can see it in concrete detail. We have confidence that yes, this is the way God's going to continue to deal all down uh, through history, and it becomes very relevant to us because it was relevant to them. So it shows that America is living very dangerously in its rebellion against Jesus. The third thing that shows the relevance of this book to the first century audience is that the words are something that they were expected to keep, to obey. In other words, this is not just a book that predicts future events to satisfy our curiosity. No, this is, this is a book of ethics. This is a book that he expects them to, to live out. So verse 7 says, Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 4, verse 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That happens to include every word of 
the book of Revelation, as difficult as this book has been to, to go through. So it shows that obedience is always rewarded by God. And some people say, well, do we get the exact same rewards that they do? Yes, exactly the same uh, blessings. This book is filled with applications that we can pay heed to. We'll see it in an upcoming sermon when I'm uh, tying together some of the loose ends of this book, that the book as a whole is a spiritual war manual that teaches us how to engage in spiritual warfare. It's a book that teaches his soldiers ethical principles if God is going to bless them in our spiritual battle, how to go against uh, the demonic. It's a book that shows us how to worship. Uh, there's many things that this book uh, teaches us. So because the first century saints were using this book and other books in the Bible to advance the Great Commission, and they did so in faith that he would bless them, they were seeing nation after nation crumbling to the gospel until finally the entire empire of Rome became a, a Christian republic. So John applied the Old Testament to Rome. That means we're justified in applying the Old Testament to pagan nations. He applied the promises of God in the New Covenant times. We're perfectly justified in applying the promises of the Old Testament in New Covenant times. So this is a book intended for every nation uh, in New Covenant history. It means that we ought to look to this book on how we approach elections coming up in a couple of weeks. This is a book of the ethical imperatives, not just future predictions. Now the next thing that we see is that the words of this book were so powerful that John was overwhelmed by them, and he fell down on his knees to worship God. Reading Revelation is nothing like reading Reader's Digest or reading some history book, okay? As we saw in our discussions of the Greek terms Bibli, Biblion and Bibliderion, uh, big book, little book, in chapters 10 through 11, Revelation was being added to the canon of Scripture and it has all of the characteristics that that canon had. It's the very word of God. So if this is a book where God himself is speaking to his people, John is understandably impacted by these words, overwhelmed by them, recognizes God in these words, and he bows down to worship God. And unfortunately, he confused the angel with Jesus. Um, verse 8. Now I, John, who heard and saw these things when I had heard and seen, so it's the scriptures having his impact, when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Now why would he worship an angel? Uh, commentators believe that John mistakenly thought it was Jesus. Why would he mistakenly think it must be Jesus? Well, because Christ's very words are coming through this angel to John and having an impact, a divine impact upon his life that makes him want to worship. Now, I do not believe John's intention was to worship an angel. Rather, he had intended to worship Christ his Lord, but the unmistakable presence and power of God and in the inspired words humbles him, powerfully moves him. And even the correction of the angel uh, shows that this was the case. If you look at verse nine, but he says to me, don't, I am your fellow slave, and among your brothers, the prophets, those who keep the words of this book, worship God. He's not opposed to worship. 
That's the first response we should have when we hear God's word is to worship him. But he's explaining why is it that John is experiencing God in these words. He says, I'm a prophet. You may have never thought of angels as being prophets of God, but this one was. He says very clearly, I am your fellow slave and among your brothers, the prophets. Now, what happens when you hear a true prophet? When you hear a true prophet, you are hearing the very words of God, not simply man's impressions about God's revelation. John would have understood that. According to 2 Peter 1, verse 21, quote, prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, unquote. So if this angel was a prophet, then it's the Holy Spirit or Christ who was speaking through him. It's not man's words, but God's that were given. This is what Paul said to the Thessalonians. He says, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. 1 Corinthians 14. He's talking about prophecy, right? And he says, when somebody prophesies, this is true prophecy, not the fake stuff you see today, when somebody prophesies in the church, what happens? Hearts and intents of, of his heart is revealed, and he falls down and worships God. Why? Because he is face to face with God's very word. This is the very nature of what prophecy is doing. So this is what happened with John. He fell down just like 1 Corinthians says he will fall down. So if John thought this was Jesus, bringing God's revelation, it's no surprise that John bows down to worship him. Now, the angel probably did not look anything like uh, what you see in your bulletin picture there. Uh, in fact, there's a danger of my putting pictures because it twists your mind. He probably was not wearing wings. Uh, angels, many times, just look like men, right? So it was very understandable that there would be a, a mistaken identity. Now, before I look at the angel's correction, let me comment a bit on the fact that the angel does not use the word biblidarion, or little book here. Uh, that would have been a reference to the as yet unfinished book of Revelation. That was over and over. That's called a biblidarion in this book. When he's referring to the canon, he refers to biblion. And that is what he is using here. This is following the example of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, God did exactly the same thing that happened here. He gave Ezekiel a little book, and this was the revelational content that then Ezekiel was going to write out. So he gives the little book, and that little book gets added to the big book of the canon. Okay, so that, that's kind of the background uh, of what's going on. Well, what is happening here is the angel is helping John to finish off the Biblion, the canon, the big book, by finishing off the little book. And we'll look at that more when he ends prophecy in the last uh, section of this book. But that is why this angel lumps himself in with all of the other prophets. He has been involved in bringing the inspired word of God to the church of Jesus Christ. And the canon cannot be closed until verse 21 is written down. Now let me comment again on why God's word should always lead us to worship. God's word is God himself speaking to us. And we've seen in the past, God's word has all the attributes of God. Hebrews talks 
uh, about that. Because God is all-powerful, there is a literal power. When the Spirit takes this word and impresses it, it turns nations upside down. Uh, he says that they, the word, you're reading along in the word, and all of a sudden, this scripture is exposing all kinds of dirty secrets in your heart. You didn't even realize were in your heart what's going on there. It is God himself using the scriptures to look into your heart. He calls the scripture a hammer that can break resistance down. He calls it medicine that can bring healing. And you've felt healing through the word of God many, many times. He uses all of these images to show, no, this is God himself speaking into your hearts. Now, that assumes, of course, that you're approaching this book in faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 says that it is a dead letter to those who are outside of Christ. They don't see it as being the word of God. The evangelist Gypsy Smith had an agnostic tell him, look, I've read through the Bible several times and I don't see any inspiration in here. And Gypsy Smith said, let it go through you once and you will tell a different story. In other words, you're not approaching this book in faith. And I've experienced this myself. I've read the Bible and it's been a dusty, dry book for me. And other times where I've read it in faith on my knees and God has come so powerfully in my life, I've almost felt undone in his presence. It drove me to worship. So I want you to notice that the angel does not disagree with John's worship. That's the most natural outcome of being confronted with God's word. All he does is he directs the worship properly. He, he says, be God-centered, worship God. And by analogy, preachers should not point to themselves when they preach God's word. They should constantly be pointing all honor, all authority, all reverence to God Almighty. Now, another thing that commentators point out is that verse 10 is a deliberate and direct contrast with the timing and the actions of Daniel 12, verse 9. Daniel had been told, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. And in context, it's the end of the Old Covenant, the end of Jerusalem, the end uh, of Israel as a, as a separate nation. So Daniel had been told, yes, there's a great tribulation I've just described to you, but don't worry about it. Daniel was frightened to death. He said, don't worry about it. That is far distant. You can seal up the books. Don't even worry about it. It's far distant. And now John has written a book about exactly the same events that Daniel wrote about. And he is told, do not seal the words of this book, for the time is near. Before it was distant, now it's near. He was, Daniel was told, seal it up. John is told, don't seal it up. Dispensationalist commentaries completely miss this, and they end up holding to a very, very strange contradiction. Daniel's prophecy in chapter 12 dealt with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, but when was Daniel written? It was written in 530 BC, 600 years before the events actually happened. I think on anybody's time scale, 600 years is a long ways away. You don't need to worry about what's gonna happen 600 years from now. It's gonna take care of itself, right? But what they want us to believe is that, yes, Daniel, for Daniel, it was a long ways away. 600 years is a long ways away. But these prophecies here are near. They are so imminent to John 
And they are of such significance that John is told, don't seal up the book of this canon because the time is near. Now, here's the weird thing. 600 years for them is far distant. 2,000 years, because they think they still haven't been fulfilled, is near. It's imminent. It makes absolutely no sense. On anybody's time scale, four years is very soon. And he said prophecy was about to end very soon, and Jerusalem was about to end very soon, and the Old Covenant sacrifices were about to end very soon. So here's what J. Adams correctly says on both of the passages. He says, unlike John's, Daniel's prophecy did not constitute a contemporary message and was therefore sealed until the times of which he wrote. In direct contrast, Jesus told John not to seal the apocalypse for the matters it concerns were at hand. But what makes the imminency of fulfillment so pronounced is the fact that verse 11 indicates it's too late for Israel to be rescued. It says, he who acts unjustly, let him act unjustly still, and let the filthy one be filthy still, and let the righteous one still practice righteousness, and let the holy one still be sanctified. Now, he is not talking about eternity because you've got righteous and wicked side by side. That doesn't happen in eternity. And they continue side by side practicing wickedness and practicing righteousness. This is clearly something that happens in history. And to understand it, you need to read the next verse after Daniel says that the book was to be sealed up. Verses 10 through 11 of this chapter, Revelation 22, verses 10 through 11 are parallel to verses 9 through 10 of Daniel 12. And let me read that for you. Daniel 12, 9 through 10. Go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. So this is predicting that at the time of the tribulation, the wicked would persevere in their wickedness and would not understand, or as the Message Bible paraphrases it, but the wicked will just keep on being wicked without a clue about what is happening. Now, we see that fulfilled perfectly in the history book that Josephus wrote. He was an eyewitness of that war, uh, riding around you know, with the general. He's witnessing right up on the front of the battlefield. And he was absolutely astonished at how quickly his fellow countrymen degenerated into the utmost wickedness. He, he, he didn't know how it happened, but he documented that it did happen. It was like they were on a free fall of wickedness and blindness and rebellion. Now, as to timing, Dennis Johnson comments that what Daniel saw in the future John sees in the present. Now, I find that very interesting admission by him because he's not a partial preterist. Uh, but he, he just can't evade the conclusion that is in there. So what was happening in John's present? Israel had committed the unpardonable sin and they could not repent. They could not reverse their slide to disaster. Now, it's a scary observation of human nature that when people resist God long enough, like Israel did in the first century, they eventually cross an invisible line beyond which they cannot reverse themselves. Impossible. There's an older commentator by the name of Carpenter who said of this verse, and you've probably quoted this quote, so an act 
reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. He is saying that your attitudes toward the Word of God can eventually form irreversible character. So if you are personally at the point where God says, verse 11 of you, there is no reversing your destiny, whether it's of a nation or of an individual. The wicked people described in this verse had crossed the line, had committed the unpardonable sin. And God's order, and this is an order from God, it's a command. Just like let there be light, there's a let be here. God's order, he who acts unjustly, let him act unjustly still, and let the filthy one be filthy still. If God says that of you, it is irreversible. Just like when God said in Genesis, through Revelation, all the way through the scripture, let there be light, let there be anything, it is done. And I've had people tell me when I've confronted them about their sin and rebellion, I'll just ask God's forgiveness on this. They act as if there's no consequences to their sin, and they are very cavalier towards sin and rebellion. But here is, the, here is the scary thing. The more we quench the Holy Spirit, the closer to the line of the unpardonable sin that you get. Let me repeat that. The more you quench the Holy Spirit, the closer to the line of unpardonable sin that we get until Hebrews says there's a point where it is impossible to be renewed to repentance you won't be able to repent. From that point on, you will act unjustly still and be filthy still and be totally comfortable in your damnable position. Those are solemn words to end this paragraph with. And they're solemn words I think we need to pay attention to if we are stubborn in our rebellion. Now I'm gonna pick up at verse 12 next week and continue to look at these um, final principles by which we can interpret the book, but I do want to end with five final thoughts of application. First, let me make an application from the fact that God's words are faithful and true. When your flesh or a demon or wherever the thought might come tempts you to question God's word, you need to rebuke that thought sharply. That's what David did in Psalm 42 through 43. Thoughts were flooding into his head that discouraged him, made him want to give up. And he rebuked himself and he told him, quit thinking that way, David. He told himself, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. So he was preaching to himself, telling himself to cut it out because God's words were faithful and his own thoughts were not faithful and true. So he was saying, no, I know God's thoughts are faithful and they contradict my thoughts and my thoughts are leading me to despair. I've got to quit thinking my thoughts. I've got to start thinking God's thoughts. That's exactly what David is doing. So when you're tempted to think, oh, it's just a little sin. I can get away with my sin. You need to rebuke yourself and say, no, I'm not going to call God a liar. God in Galatians says uh, that everyone who sows to the flesh will reap of the flesh. You're always going to reap some disaster from the seeds that you sow. And I'm going to believe God's word. I'm not going to sow to the flesh by giving into this temptation. When you're tempted to doubt that you can do what God is calling you to do, then you need to rebuke yourself and say, no, I'm not going to call God a liar. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, that is a misused verse. You only apply it to what God has commanded you to do. He's not commanded you to cross the Red Sea and the Red Sea will part. So 
You can't apply it to that. So oh, Israelites could go through the Red Sea. I'm going to walk through the Red Sea. You'll drown. Or at least you'll walk back out again pretty quick. Um, so you apply this to what God has commanded you to do, right? Let me give you one more application. Uh, how you need to argue with yourself and, and reject this negative thinking. Um, one person was constantly being tempted to think that he had committed the unpardonable sin and that he could not be forgiven. He asked for forgiveness, but he didn't believe that God would forgive him. It was a, a temptation to doubt the faithfulness and the trueness of 1 John 1, which says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness, and that word all applied to his sin, if he confessed that sin, right? Now, Hebrews tells us if we've really committed the unpardonable sin, we can't be renewed to repentance. We can't repent. We don't want to repent. So if you do repent, and if you do confess and turn from your sins, you're going to be cleansed and forgiven of those sins. That's the logic that's behind it. So you've got to argue with yourself when you find these doubts going through your mind. The point of all of these illustrations is we have these tendencies day in and day out to doubt the faithfulness and the trueness of God's word. Now, if I were to ask you, is God's word true? You'd say yes. But then your doubts come into your mind, right? So you've got to resist that by affirming the phrase in verse 6, these words are faithful and true. My thoughts are not. Second, our hearts tend to worship men, things, and other idols. When God gives us a beautiful gift, our trust so easily transfers from God to the beautiful gift, or the beautiful spouse, or the beautiful money, or the beautiful house. This is a form of idolatry, right? We have this tendency, and we need to be like this angel and say, no, you must not worship, you must not trust, you must not bow down to anything or elevate anything to the status of God. We have this tendency, as John Calvin said, our hearts are like idol factories, are constantly uh, producing this tendency to worship what it should not be worshiping, and we need to pay heed to this angel's words, worship God alone. Third, see yourself as a slave when it comes to your responsibilities and as a son or daughter when it comes to privileges. The angel called himself a slave. He called John the apostle a slave of Jesus Christ. And John called himself a slave of Jesus Christ earlier in the book. Now, there are a lot of people who think that's utterly inappropriate to think of yourself as a slave. I am a princess. I am a prince. I am a son of God. Well, the two are not contradictory. You are indeed a slave, and I think you need to affirm it. Are you better than the Apostle John? I think not. Thinking of yourself as a slave brings humility, and slaves can be sons. How are they sons and daughters? By being adopted into God's family. In fact, that's the way that all biblical slavery was. It was not like the kind of slavery people are opposed to in, in, in the USA, the horrible slavery that goes on in Africa. Okay, or it happened in America. Abraham's slaves were born into his household. He treated them as his family members. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 say that a slave was no different than your underage child, right? 
So they were part of the family. So we are slaves of God. We are sons and daughters. And thinking of ourselves as slaves helps to bring the appropriate humility, which I think the Church of Jesus Christ desperately needs more of. And thinking of ourselves as adopted slaves who've been adopted as sons and daughters into his family gives us incredible love and appreciation for what God has elevated us to. But I would beseech you, brothers and sisters, to start thinking of yourselves as slaves of God. Fourth, remind yourself that God's word is always relevant. Look for its relevance. Don't dismiss any of it. Even the boring parts are relevant and should be cherished as God's good gift to you. You might have to really study it hard, but cherish it. Thank God for every portion of it and treat it as precious. And then finally, I mentioned the negative portion of verse 11, but let's take hope from the positive statements in verse 11. He says, let the righteous one still practice righteousness and let the holy one still be sanctified. I praise God. This is his decree concerning the elect. And it will be fulfilled just as surely as when he said, let there be light and there was light. He says, let there be continued practice of holiness and of sanctification in the life of the righteous, of the elect. And it's going to happen. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's one of the signs that we truly are regenerate is that we are persevering in holiness. God, the, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is part and parcel of the whole doctrine of salvation. You cannot have the, the first points of Calvinism without that final point of Calvinism. And so there is much in this passage to be encouraged by. God is going to finish the good work in you. You may feel weak, you may feel helpless, but praise God, He's given a decree concerning your life, and he's going to help you win the victory. But in terms of answering the title of this book, why does the book of Revelation matter? We can say it matters because this was incredibly relevant to the first century saints, and the way it was relevant makes it relevant to us and everything that we do. Hallelujah. Let's cherish it. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that if you are for us, who can be against us? We thank you for your promises that having begun a good work in us, you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your promise that uh, you are the one uh, who gives salvation. As Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord, and that there is no one who can pluck us out of your hand. We're so grateful, Father, for our security in you. And that having decreed our sanctification and our glorification, in fact, the whole golden chain of redemption from election to glorification in the future, uh, that we can uh, go forth in confidence, engaging in our work not to earn our salvation, but out of gratitude and love as your faithful bond slaves. Father, bless this, your people. Bless them with courage. Bless them with hope. Bless them with faith. Uh, bless them with insight into the applications of your word. Bless them, Father, with an understanding of the incredible riches that they have as adopted sons and daughters. And Father, may we live out our entire lives to your honor and to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>